Before us tonight is uh, one of the most squalid stories in all the Bible. This is the kind of movie you walk out of. Anybody ever actually walked out of a movie? There you go. Good for you. Please don't walk out tonight. And yet here it is. Here is this story. Why do we need to know about this infamous night? Well, God considers it necessary and profitable and instructive that we might be trained in righteousness. Now, Lot is our main character tonight, and based on what we know about him, this passage should stop us dead in our tracks. Why? Because the Bible explains, it's hardly, it's almost beyond belief, but the Bible tells us that Lot was a righteous man. Lot wanted to do what was right in some part of his heart. It's driven home, not just in the New Testament where we're told that outright, but it's also driven home in the book of Genesis because the book of Genesis gives us many parallels between Abraham and Lot. They're very comparable in many ways. Moses goes to great lengths to connect these two men and the way that they did certain things. Think about it. As we go through these passages, and if we think back a couple of weeks to we seeing Abraham and how he interacted with uh, Jesus and the two angels who came, both are shown sitting at the entrance of where they lived. Both had dealings with the locals near them. Both go out to receive their guests. Both offer them washing and rest. Both prepare a feast for them. Both recognize the evil of the culture around them. But despite all of these parallels and similarities, there is, of course, a profound and obvious difference between the outcomes of these two lives, Lot and Abraham. Abraham goes on to be the father of faith, the kind of man that we like to teach our kids songs about, right? Father Abraham. Whereas Lot presides over a horrifying night of ruin and failure. No children's songs about Genesis 19, thank goodness. We need to know what happened here because we find ourselves in a culture very much like the one that Lot was in. And if he, a righteous man, can fail so terribly, saved as through fire, then we need to pay attention and not think ourselves above the kind of mistakes that we find him making. This story is not preserved just to churn our stomachs or to make us think, oh, I'm so much better than Lot was. It is to caution us and to help us ask ourselves the much more important question, what can I do to avoid becoming like Lot in my own life? Lot is a display of what can happen to even a righteous person when they love the things of this world. As always, the lesson being learned here comes down to the heart. While both Abraham and Lot were believers, Lot's belief did not change his life. It did not motivate his decisions. It did not control his thinking. Abraham's belief did do all of those things. Lot had no interest in discovering God's way for his life or for his family. He went his own way. He went the world's way. Lot lived close to Abraham, just a few hours' walk, but even though Lot was close, we find that he was absolutely way off course when it came to the actual meaningful parts of life, his spiritual life, his family life, his, his philosophical life. All of those things were way, way off course. 
And when a, a, a vehicle or a person is off course, it's a problem. There's a rule of thumb in aviation called the one in 60 rule. It states that if you fly at just one degree off course, that every 60 miles you fly, you will be one mile astray from your target. It was sadly illustrated in 1979, a passenger jet left New Zealand for a sightseeing trip to Antarctica and back. Both the pilots were experienced, they weren't novices, but unknown to them, there was a two-degree error in their flight coordinates. And this placed the aircraft 28 miles to the east of where the pilots thought they were. They thought they were out for a pleasure cruise, they were not. The flight went fine until they inevitably struck Mount Erebus, which was now in their flight path. They just didn't know that it was waiting for them. All 257 passengers were killed in a completely avoidable tragedy. How could they avoid it? By being on course, by being properly calibrated, by knowing where they were going and having it set properly. Lot had gone down to see the sights of the plain of Zoar back a number of chapters ago, and now he found himself right in the middle of a very avoidable tragedy avoidable for him, at least. Let's look at it. Verse 1, the two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground, and he said, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet. Spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Lot's story is about giving in to the seduction of the world. This world is a seductive place when it comes to our natural heart, the heart of man that has what we call the sin nature. Bible teachers love to point out the progression that Genesis gives us when it comes to Lot's life. First, when he was still back with his uncle Abraham, what do we see? He looked on this area from afar, and he was enamored of it. He thought, man, that looks good. That looks like the kind of place where a man could make his fortune. Next time we see him, we, he's pitching his tent towards Sodom, so he's gotten a little closer. The next time we see him, he's living in the city, and finally we find him here sitting in the city gate. Now, the city gate was a place where justice was conducted, where business would be decided, and so we're left to assume that Lot was something like a city councilman in the city of Sodom. And that's reinforced by the fact that the men of Sodom in a little bit are going to complain that he acts as a judge in the city. And so Sodom was not just a city that Lot lived in. It was his city. He had made it his home. He had completely put his roots down here in every single way. He had found great success there on a human level, but we find that he had no meaningful influence over those around him. He was no Daniel, shining as a beacon of righteousness and through whose witness the heart of Nebuchadnezzar himself was turned to God. There's a lot of interesting parallels that we could draw, or a lot of, you know, contrasts that we can draw between Daniel and between Lot. Daniel is forced to go to the wicked city of Babylon. It wasn't his choice. Lot went on his own. Daniel made a great impact for righteousness and for what we would call the gospel, for the truth of God. Lot made none whatsoever. 
Daniel was uh, enslaved and probably made a eunuch when he was brought to Babylon. Lot made himself a fortune and became the mayor or the city council. And yet we see a big, big difference between these two individuals. We see Lot giving up more and more to the world and to its culture. He's not set apart from them. He's not going God's way. He's not trying to separate out from these uh, polluting influences of the world. No, he's, he's digging himself in more and more, attaching himself more and more to the culture around him and the world system around him. He had abandoned his tent. He had arranged for his daughters to marry two local boys in town. All his business, all his time, all his efforts, all of his, his affections are attached to this city. And yet, we do see a flicker, ever so faint, of righteousness in his heart. He's concerned for these two travelers who have come through the gate. He knows these two strangers are not safe, and he wants to help them. He wants to host them. He wants to be sure that they are treated properly, and then he wants to send them on their way early. Did you notice that? We can sense his double-mindedness. He does care about the welfare of these two fellows. He wants to do right by them, but... He also wants them to get going early, not only to help them stay safe, but I think also so that they don't find out how sleazy his beloved town is. He gives them no real warning. He doesn't say, you can't stay in the city square. You'll be killed. You'll be assaulted. You'll be treated X, Y, and Z. He says, no, 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 no. Just, just come to my house. You really want to come to my house? No, for real. You want to come to my house? And so we see him kind of trying to play both sides of things. He, he, he has this flicker of righteousness ever so faint, like Tinkerbell when she dies in the play and you have to clap and it's just this tiny little light. That's Lot's righteousness. That's his faith. On the other hand, he so loves Sodom, he can't bear to tell these guys the truth of how much danger they're actually in. Verse 4, before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. It's thought by some commentators that perhaps this is what they did to all travelers who came through, which is why Lot knew, yeah, you can't stay in the city square. That's a little bit of speculation. But looking at Lot, for years, it seemed like he did the impossible, that he had it all, that he could live with one foot in his faith and one foot in the world. He had his belief, insignificant though it was to his daily life. It had no impact on his daily life other than an emotional sense that he had from time to time. But he also had the benefits and the luxuries and the niceties of Sodom. Sure, he didn't like what they did. Peter tells us that. It vexed his soul to see what his friends and business partners and fellow councilmen were doing. It bothered him, but that didn't really have anything to do with him after all, except that it did. It absolutely did. He thought he was able to walk this spiritual tightrope, sort of keeping dual citizenship in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. But meanwhile, what he didn't realize, what he was numb to, were the tentacles of perversion and greed that had slithered around his heart and infected him and infected his mentality and infected his family. He thought he's still living a righteous life. And we're going to see just how far off course he was in a moment. 
Now listen, Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Lord, was very clear. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. We need to believe Jesus. Now, we have to have money in this society. You have to have money to buy clothes and to have shelter and to have electricity and things like that. Jesus does not tell in a blanket, generalized way that all of his people must live ascetic lives. You live out in the dirt somewhere with no possessions and no belongings. He has asked some of his people to live that way, but that is not a blanket, generalized command that he gives us. We have to have money for certain things, but we cannot love money and love God at the same time. We can think we're doing so for a certain amount of time, but it's not really happening. Effectively, all we're doing is living the life that Lot is living. And none of us would say from anything we know about Lot that, oh yeah, he was doing okay for a while. The only time we think he was doing okay was when he was completely passive just with Abraham. Anytime we see anything about his story, we see he's failing, he's failing, he's failing, he's choosing wrongly, he's choosing poorly, he's choosing badly, because he's always choosing material things, he's always choosing worldly things, he's always choosing wealth, he's always choosing what feels good for me at the time, what is good for my prominence, what is good for my pocketbook, and it's just a disaster that unfolds slowly, a plane that's crashing very slowly, and, it, and this is where the impact happens finally in chapter 19. We cannot live in two kingdoms. And so after this long life of trying to pretend he could live in both kingdoms and have dual citizenship, Lot faced a reckoning. You know, Sodom was facing a reckoning for their sin. God had come and said to Abraham, the cry is great. We're going to go down there and deal with Sodom. But Lot was facing a reckoning as well. He was going to have to make some hard choices that night. He was going to have to face some really difficult trials that night. The problem was he lived his life in such a way that when the moment came, he was powerless to stand. He could not withstand what was happening to him. He had no spiritual strength. He had no answers for the people around him. He had no foothold. The demand of the sodomites here is shocking, but it shouldn't be surprising because this is what sin does. We live in a relatively polite society that is relatively more or less a law and order society, although it's becoming less and less a law and order society. Have you noticed? We watch it unfold in the bigger cities around us where crime is just done in the open and no one cares, where our leaders are openly corrupt and no one seems to care or do anything about it. And so we may live in a slightly more sanitized society than what we're reading right here, at least in certain ways, but we all know that our society is no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. In some ways, we are far more perverse, have a far greater volume of wickedness and and iniquity saturating our culture. And so we're shocked by what we read here, but it isn't surprising. This is what sin does. Not just to people thousands of years ago in a place that got burned up by fire. This is what sin does in every single heart. It's not like, you know how it's, it's been such a, a strange thing through the pandemic where you have some people who are like, yeah, I got coronavirus and I only know it because I had a test that said I had it. 
And then you have other people who said, well, I had coronavirus and I had a few sniffles and, you know, and, and I had a headache and I felt run down. And then other people are like, I got coronavirus and now I'm dead, like a couple days later. Sin isn't like that where I only had a little case of sin. It really, you know what? It gave me a little bit of pain in like my joints right here. But then other than that, it was completely fine. This is what sin does in your heart. It enslaves you and it rots you. This is how it affects hearts and peoples and civilizations. Sodom and Gomorrah are not an outlier. Human history is absolutely full of this kind of depravity, and we should never try to sanitize sin or the effects of sin in our thinking. And what we really need to do is realize that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that we're reading here that, is, that we recoil from because it is so shocking, that sin lives in your heart and needs to be cleansed by the power of Jesus Christ. We need to surrender our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting because I don't want that same sin. Maybe it would work itself out in a different way, but I don't want that same vile sin which rejects you and rebels against you. I do not want it to work itself out in my life. Verse six says, Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. And he said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want with them. However, don't do anything to these men because they've come under the protection of my roof. There are a lot of bad dads in the Bible. (laughs) But man, Lot has got a really great chance at the title, if you ask me. If you're picking a seed for best, worst, if March Madness is coming up, right? You're picking, if you're putting a bracket for worst dad, this guy, he's my number one pick, I think. Notice again, though, his double-mindedness. We see a flicker of righteousness again, but his love for the world has completely short-circuited his mindset. Hey, listen, it took real courage to go out and talk to this violent horrifying mob of people, all the men of the city united. Didn't matter their age, didn't matter their social standing, didn't matter their economic class or anything like that. They all got together and they said, hey, we're here and this is what we're doing. And they surrounded the house and Lot went out by himself. That took courage. And he preaches to them, maybe for the first time, about the fact that, hey, what you guys are doing is evil. But then we see that his fix for this situation is, go ahead and rape my daughters all you want. Whoa. And you just think, what in the world is going on? And you see Lot is effectively saying, that way we all get what we want. You, the world kind of gets their thing and, and you know, that I'm being bothered by the fact that you guys want to do this and so I should probably do something about it and I, that'll make me feel better and so everybody's happy. And this is what Lot's trying to do. He wants to make everybody happy. He wants to make the flesh happy. He wants to make his faith happy. You cannot do both of those things. And we see that the culture of Sodom that he is so attached to and so affectionate with has completely perversified the way that he thinks. Sure, he's not doing what the other men are doing, but is his solution any better? Most of us in here are parents. this is one of the most horrible things we read in all the Bible. And he says, I've got a solution. This is what we'll do. And this is supposed to be a righteous man who's supposed to be a representative of the one true God. Uh, This is a, a very scary moment. In the New Testament, or rather in New Testament terms, we would call Lot carnal. 
Look, we'd like to say he's not a believer at all, but we can't. The New Testament declares that he's a believer, that he is righteous. And so we would call him carnal. We use the term carnal Christian. Now, some will say there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Yes, there is. The book of Romans chapter 8 talks about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about it, where Paul says, hey, I, I should be teaching you certain things. You're carnal. And what does that mean? Carnal, carne, carne asada, flesh, right? It, it means, it describes a person who is saved, who has faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ, yet living life according to and indulging the flesh, that old sin nature that says, I want what I want the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things. And what we find in both Testaments, in the New Testament, it's described to us, but it's demonstrated here, carnal believers, carnal Christians do not function properly. Their their life looks like a house made with crooked measurements. There's great inconsistency in how they behave. Now listen, clearly in the city of Sodom, there was nothing off limits, nothing taboo when it came to sexuality. But it's interesting. Let, let's, let's try to zoom in here for a second. What do we see? We know that Lot has these two daughters, and we know that they're betrothed to be married, and we know that it's close enough and it's you know, near enough that the sons-in-law are in his house with him. And yet we see that Lot's daughters are virgins. Great. And so what do we see? It seems that Lot drew a line and he told his daughters, hey, it's wrong for you to have sex before you're married. And that's true. It is against God's command. It's against God's morality to have sex in any situation other than, out, uh, other than within the confines of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. And so Lot, on the one hand, is saying, oh yeah, you guys, do you think anybody else was waiting for marriage in the city of Sodom? I certainly don't. But Lot clearly, as the patriarch, said, no, this is what we're doing because this is what's right. And yet in the same breath, he's signing off on gang rape of these very two daughters. What in the world is going on? How can there be such a disconnect? It's because he's, he's a carnal believer. And apart from surrender to God and actually following his word and going to his word and saying, what does God really say about parenting and really say about morality and really say about what I should be doing with my life? If we don't do that, then there is no foundation or firm foundation for morality. Then you're just kind of picking things willy-nilly. Let's do this. Let's not do this. Let's do this. Let's not do this. And it's all relative. And everything being relative will ultimately just be polluted by sin, because that's what sin does. One writer points out, very importantly, I think, you know, the angels could have put a stop to any of this at any moment. What are the angels doing right now? They're waiting. They're waiting because they're waiting to force Lot to make a choice. What did Joshua say? He said, choose this day whom you're going to serve. And this is all about, okay, are you going to be a righteous man or are you not going? Are you going to be a sodomite? You need to pick which kingdom you want to be a part of. And so they wait. He must choose. Verse 9, get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. But The angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were with them at the uh, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. 
Lot was not an influence of the people of, to the people of Sodom. He was a nuisance to them. Now, we live in a terribly sinful culture. It is a given that you and I are going to go out into the world, living our lives, and we're going to interact with the world around us. Paul said, if I said you can't ever interact with unbelievers, that would be impossible. You'd have to be removed from the earth. So it's a given that we are going to interact with the sinful world around us. But the purpose of our Christian life is not only to have personal beliefs hidden in our minds, it is to be salt and light. Lot, all he had was a personal belief hidden in his mind. He didn't share it with people. It didn't impact the way he made decisions. He didn't, he didn't have any sort of influence. We are supposed to be salt and light. We are to make disciples as we are going. We are to be proclaimers of truth and agents of grace. We're to live in such a way that people are drawn to our kingdom rather than us getting entangled in their kingdom. And so everything that Lot is doing is backwards and is deficient in comparison to what God actually wants for his people. When this moment of testing came, Lot had no power. He reminds me of Steve Rogers before he took all those steroids in Captain America. Remember that? They put him on the like 11-year-old boy's body with movie magic. He wanted to stand up to evil, but he was so weak, so contaminated. There's nothing he could do. Again, compare Lot to Daniel. We know what an impact Daniel had. And we remember that Daniel was 17 years old when his book begins. The difference was Daniel was devoted to righteousness, and what a difference that made. Notice the sodomites' attitude toward Lot. They don't care about him. They've tolerated him for a little while. Sure, they've had business dealings with him. I'm sure they were friendly in the city square with him. But now we see what they really think of him. The Bible is speaking very frankly here, and I don't want to be inappropriate or anything like that, but, but look at what they're threatening to do to him. And then realize that that is the heart of our enemy towards us. That's what sin wants to do to you and to your family and to this world. Our enemy, the devil, is a destroyer. He's a murderer from the beginning. And so when temptation comes along, we as Christians need to be honest about what's really being offered and what the end result is really going to be. We see the shiny packaging when temptation comes along, but inside is this, is this kind of vile filth and harm being directed at you and your family and the other believers around you. Meanwhile, the Lord God comes to us and he says, I'd like to be your shepherd. I want to be your friend. I want to be your savior. I want to shelter you and guide you and fill you up and help you. I want to transform you only for good. I want to enrich you in ways you can't imagine. I want to give you life everlasting. The world wants to harm you. It's ready to break down the door to destroy your life and your family. Meanwhile, Jesus stands at the door of hearts and knocks, waiting to be invited in so that he might have a loving personal relationship with those who desire to know him and follow him and make him their Lord. Verse 12 says, Then the angel said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons or daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. 
I found this interesting. The angels did not have a specific list. They did not have a manifest with a certain set of names on it. It reminds us that in the incredible grace of God, there is always, always, always room for one more. Always. There's always room for one more. They would have taken anyone out that night who wanted to be taken out. They didn't have to be blood relatives. Had there been some Rahab in the city that night, the angels would have rescued them too. Lot makes a desperate plea to his sons-in-law to be. They thought he was joking, which means he must have not done any preaching to them before. Now, we remember that Noah had preached righteousness and preached about the coming judgment. And what happened? People scoffed, but it's, they scoffed because they didn't believe. That's not what's happening here. Lot's message was so out of character and so without context that his sons-in-law had no reason to believe that he was not telling a joke. Is this new material, Lot? I hadn't heard this one before. He wasn't preaching to them because they had never heard preaching before. They just thought he was pulling their leg. What a sad thing. Peter tells us how Lot's righteous soul was vexed by the sin of Sodom. But Lot's belief stayed in his mind and wasn't worked out in his life. He was distressed, sure, but silent. And because of it, he had no spiritual fruit to speak of, no spiritual children. Compare his house to Abraham's. Abraham's was full of hundreds of people who were dedicated and circumcised and ready to serve the Lord at a moment's notice. Verse 15, at daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and he brought them out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you'll be swept away. So daybreak. Remember, the, the bad part of this story started before bedtime. That means that, that, that Lot spent hour after hour after hour just refusing to leave. Can you imagine these poor angels just looking at each other and just like throwing up their hands and saying, are you kidding me? Are we still here? Why is this guy not packing? Where's your stuff? Why are we, you're sitting on your couch still? Get up. It's time to go. They have to take him out forcibly. They have to grab him and say, hey, we have to leave. And then they get outside the city. And as soon as they're outside the city, the family just stands there right outside the walls. And they say, you have to run for your lives. Do you not understand what's happening here? This is such a sorry display that we're seeing. Derek Kidner writes, the grip of this present evil world is powerfully shown in this last minute struggle. Listen, temptation is real, and we should expect it to come knocking from time to time. But the Lord promises that we will never be tempted beyond what we can escape as we choose to walk in faith. Unlike Lot, we must choose to flee idolatry, run away from temptation, rather than let it trample us down. Verse 18, Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you, and you've shown me great kindness by saving my life, but I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too. I will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it. For I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. 2019 NPR 
published a heartbreaking article about two Kurdish girls. They had been kidnapped with many others by ISIS at ages five and six. They were held captive for years, so long that they completely forgot who they were before. They no longer knew their old language. They no longer knew their family. They no longer knew their own last names. The woman who had been acting as their mother would sell girls at about 11 or 12 years of age to be brides to ISIS fighters. Finally, they were rescued. When interviewed, the girls said this, I don't want anything except to go back. Not to home, but back into their captivity. They said, I just want to go back. That person's my mother. I, I want to go back to her. The man who rescued them set up a video call with the girl's true relatives who were refugees in Canada at the time. After the call, he asked one of the girls, he said, these are your relatives, they love you, they want to talk to you, aren't they better than your captors? And the girl answered, no. Now, these precious little girls have an excuse that we understand. We understand the idea of Stockholm Syndrome. We understand the the ruin that has been wrecked upon their their minds, and we'll pray for them that God will put their lives back together. They have an excuse. Lot is behaving the exact same way, and he has no excuse. He's looking at all of this vile destruction. He says, yeah, I want to go back. Oh, please. I want to go back to that. I want to be with the Sodomites who want to rape me. This is crazy. This is bananas. We see how addicted he is to his worldly life. He doesn't plead for deliverance or forgiveness. He whimpers for compromise from the angels. He's convinced he cannot live without the city. I'll die if I do what God has instructed me to do, he said. In the Hebrew, perhaps in your translation, where it says there in verse 20 is, let me go to the little town so my soul will live. If we want to not be like Lot, we've got to keep watch on the affections of our hearts. What do we love? What invigorates our souls? The Bible commands us to set our hearts on things above, on heaven, on the Lord, on the Lord's work. We are warned against following uh, the world and allowing our hearts to become polluted the way that Lot's heart is polluted here. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else for it is the source of life. Note also, we like to point this out, especially in books like this, we see a flexibility in the providence and the will of God. The destruction of Sodom was certain. It was inevitable. The Lord said it, and it was going to be done. And yet, the gears of judgment slowed down due to Lot's hesitation. The angels say, okay, we are going to adjust part of this plan. We were going to destroy Zoar, but you can go there. We'll allow it. And we're going to wait until you get yourself over there. And so it's a very interesting thing. God's work, God's will has both absolute certainty and at times a built-in flexibility depending on the choices and the actions of human beings. Verse 24, then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt When the angels told them not to look back, the term they used was one of intense gazing, not just a passing glance. This isn't a Greek mythology Medusa thing where if you happen to see Medusa flow by, oh, I turned into stone. And we know that because Abraham's going to look at the city here in a little bit, and he's just fine. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing that it's a heart issue. As always, these issues are heart issues, and Mrs. Lot reveals her heart. In that moment, God gives her her heart's desire. 
She wanted Sodom. She wanted to be there. It's been said that we can either bow the knee to the Lord today and say, thy will be done, or in the end, he will look at us sadly and say, thy will be done, and we'll be cast into hell. He says, you want to go, you want to go with, with your sin? This is what, what happens. It goes to judgment. And the Lord did all that he could to save this woman, and instead, she decided her life wasn't worth living without Sodom, and the Lord honored her choice. Verse 27, early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where, the Lot, where Lot had lived." We don't know how long it took Abraham to find out that his nephew had survived. There's no indication that the Lord came back to give a report and say, hey, he made it out. We don't know. He found out at some point. What we do know is that Abraham could trust the Lord, and we get that sense. There's no complaining. There's no fretting. He trusts the Lord. He knew God was a rescuer. He knew God was gracious. He knew God was just, and God is still all of those things today. This must have been a tough morning for Abraham. Remember, he had gone to a whole lot of risk and trouble to save these very people a few chapters ago when they were swept away in that war between all of the armies. It must have been hard to not feel like it was all a waste, that it was all for nothing. Why did I go out there? Remember, he traveled hundreds of miles and he risked his life and he went into battle. He's an old man doing all this stuff. And now all those people are just dead. If I'm Abraham, I would have thought that was all for nothing. Come on, Lord, what's the point? Why did I do all of that? But of course, it wasn't a waste. It wasn't for nothing. Three were saved. And countless millions have been ministered to through history because of what Abraham did in chapter 14. Our efforts for the Lord may seem wasted in our eyes sometimes, but trust the increase to God and do not grow weary in doing good. We're pretty low on time. I wish this story couldn't get worse, but it has an epilogue, and it does get worse. Let's just buckle up and get through this thing. Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Instead, he and his two daughters lived in a cave. The firstborn said to the younger, our father's old. There's no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night. The firstborn came and slept with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. And the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so you can go to sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. And that night, they again got their father to drink wine and the younger went and slept with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up, so both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger also gave birth to a son. She named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. Lot is yet another example of the biblical principle, you will reap what you sow. I will reap what I sow. He sowed worldliness, and now he reaps it in a profoundly horrifying way. What did he taught his daughters? Act like the world. Cozy with the world. Do what the world does. That's how you get ahead. And his daughters do preserve their father's legacy in that sense, that of surrendering to the flesh rather than the spirit. Lot ends his story getting blackout drunk twice and 
sin continuing its vile corruption. It's sad, after all Lot had gone through, we see that he's worse off than ever in this epilogue. He's paranoid, he's withdrawn, he gives in to fear, which drove him to Zoar, and then he gives in to fear again, he drives him to this cave. He gives in to shame, which keeps him, from, for some reason, from returning to Abraham. He could have gone back to Abraham, but he doesn't. He's ashamed and he's afraid and he, he's making all of these wrong decisions again and again and again. It seems like he's living in some kind of weird paranoia. He won't let his daughters leave this cave and yet he's sure to keep the barrels of wine full. I, this is just so much worse the more that we think about it. His lifestyle of indulging the flesh rather than following the Lord completely ruined him, ruined his testimony, ruined his family, ruined his mentality, ruined his name. No one's going to name their son Lot. Or if you should, you should crack open the book of Genesis. Or if you do, crack open the book of Genesis. This was a man who should have been a source of hope and truth and justice, a man who should have been a rescuer and a blessing like his uncle was. Instead, this is his story. He had the desire, but he wouldn't yield to the Lord. He wouldn't actually live out his belief. Rather than crucify his flesh, he was a slave to it. Lot was not a victim of his circumstances. This was the inevitable result of a life lived in submission to the flesh. It did not have to happen to him, and it certainly doesn't have to happen to any of us. The Apostle John wrote to believers living in the last hour before coming judgment, and here's what he says to us as we close. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Let's do the will of God.